other places, other states. But sometimes there's just no place like your own home state. On the next Folk Plus, your state's name here. I'll be visiting different states Sunday at 4 here on WJFF Radio Catskill. There's no other place like your state's name again. Support for WJFF comes from Two Queens, offering coffee, tea, and bees. Located in Pete's Plaza, Narrowsburg, New York. TwoQueensCoffee.com. And from listener donations at WJFFRadio.org. Support for Radio Catskill comes from the Calicoon Theater, an updated vintage movie theater with new releases, film festivals, nostalgic screenings, live music events, and more. Information and schedule at thecalicoontheater.com. Welcome to Catskill Character. I'm your host, Donna Fellenberg, and I'm happy to tell you that my guest this week is Bethel, New York resident, the wonderful mezzo-soprano Janice Meyerson. Janice was born in Nebraska. Her grandparents had immigrated here from Russia during the pogroms in 1907. When they arrived in New York City, the Hebrew Immigration Aid Society gave them a free train fare to Omaha. From such humble beginnings, and she will tell you more about that, Janice has traveled the world and worked with the likes of Leonard Bernstein and Zubin Mehta. We have been fortunate here in the Catskills to be able to hear Janice when she's performing with the DVO. She's had a long and fulfilling career as an opera singer, and now we can happily claim her as a true Catskill character. Please enjoy my conversation with Janice Meyerson. Janice, welcome to Catskill Character. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. You know, it's a long way from Omaha, Nebraska. Let's start off by telling the listener about your childhood. Well, as you said, I was born in Omaha, went from there to college in St. Louis at Washington University. But while I was growing up, uh, my mother played the piano a lot. Um, totally by ear, couldn't read a note of music, and played popular songs, uh, mostly uh, Broadway folk songs, Yiddish songs, and that's how I got my love for singing. I worked in my dad's store. He had a grocery store there. My grandfathers were fruit peddlers after they came from Russia, and my dad went beyond being a fruit peddler, and he had a grocery store. So my most of my childhood was spent working in the store when I wasn't in school. Well, you described working in your dad's grocery store. The work was kind of monotonous. And I was wondering, how do you think experiencing that monotony may have helped to shape you? Well, monotony and anything that can be perceived as negative can go both ways. The monotony made me want to get out of there and think, I am never taking over this grocery store. That's when I left and went to college in St. Louis. But I think doing that kind of work as a child um, and as a teenager probably helped um, in drilling for any occupation I would have gone into, and especially music, because so much of your study time as a musician is spent in just drilling, learning the music, and having to repeat things over and over until you get it right. Whether it's rehearsing with other people or preparing yourself before the rehearsal, you have to keep drilling. So, And it is monotonous, but I think that kind of discipline, knowing that you just have to do it and you have to keep on until you get it right, is a good thing. Did your father want you to take over the grocery store? Was he disappointed when you decided you didn't want to do that? I 
don't know, and he's not around to ask anymore, but my suspicion is by the time it was time for me to go on my own, he pro- I think the answer is no. <laughs> he sold the store. Okay. What was Omaha, Nebraska like when you were growing up? It was a, a very friendly place to grow up in. I, I'd say it's Midwestern, obviously. And living in Bethel reminds me more of living in Omaha, if that makes any sense. Um, the pace is slower than New York City, where I live now or did up till uh, recently. It was odd. I was the only Jewish person in the school. That probably shaped me in some way, too. In what ways do you think? Um, I think always having an outsider status. I probably continued that throughout my life. I don't know what else to say about it. I've been gone for many years, but um, it's still a a great place to raise kids, I would say. Uh, Let's talk about your career. As I said in the introduction, you're a mezzo-soprano. Please tell the listener about the different voices that one would find in an opera. Well, anybody who's sung in a chorus, whether it's a church chorus or any kind of chorus, knows it's usually soprano, alto, tenor, bass. And the mezzo-soprano sings the alto line, which is second from the top. Um, That's the general range. But mezzo-soprano is not always determined by range. It's also by vocal color or vocal timbre. And there's different kinds of mezzos, like there's a lyric mezzo, a dramatic mezzo. My contracts when I sang in Germany always specified dramatic mezzo. Those are the heavier, more serious parts. But usually it's a darker color and maybe a fuller voice than a lyric mezzo-soprano. And then there's, of course, high sopranos. They just have a different vocal color. Some of them do soubrette parts, you know, the ingenue or the coloratura. And then there's also dramatic sopranos who sing, you know, big Wagner roles. I've sung a lot of Wagner myself, but the mezzo-soprano roles. There's also something called, um, what would you say, Zwischenfach. In German, they say between categories. And I did a lot of roles that were between mezzo-soprano and soprano. They could be done by either voice. You mentioned earlier that you studied for your master's in Boston. Was it there that you began that fruitful relationship with Leonard Bernstein? Well, almost. Um, I did do my master's um, at New England Conservatory in Boston, and um, that was a great place not just to learn how to sing and learn how to behave like a musician, but you make certain contacts there. And one of them was that I got to go to Tanglewood to be a fellowship student there. And while I was there, the president of New England Conservatory, who then was Gunther Schuller, um, called me up one day and said, Leonard Bernstein needs a mezzo to sing the role of Brangena in Tristan und Isolde of Wagner. And why don't I go um, sing for him? And I said, Mr. Schuler, I've never heard Tristan before. I don't, I don't, I don't know what it is. <laughs> he oh. said, just, just go meet Leonard Bernstein. So I, I did. I just jumped up on the stage and shook his hand and he said, can you sight read this? Uh, he just gave me the score. And I said, can you give me an hour? I don't want to sing it in front of you. I might sing a wrong note. And he said, well, just sing me a, a few phrases. So I just went, or something like that. And he said, oh, that's great. Okay. So I went and learned the part, um, not the entire role, just the aria, and came back in an hour and sang it with the orchestra. So, so that began a long relationship. I sang with him all over the world. Wow. You know, I noticed you say Leonard Bernstein. This is to me like, is it Stein? Is it? Oh, yeah, there's a thing about that. I got to remember 
I called him Maestro. <laughs> I, That's I, easier. <laughs> I gotta remember, um, there is there is a preference there, and I don't want to say it wrong on the radio. The original name would have been Bernstein, but in this country, he had a preferred way of pronouncing it, and that could be easily determined. And I shouldn't. I might say it wrong. Well, I'm probably saying it wrong, but I think he said Bernstein. But somebody's going to look it up and say you're wrong. So, <laughs> okay. What was it like working with him? Oh, he was fabulous. I have to say that he was magical because I got to work with a lot of very well-known conductors, but some of them, you you know, you get past the, the rehearsal, the performance, you think, what was that all about? Why is he so well-known or famous? And with Bernstein, I am going to say Bernstein. Okay. You got what he wanted from you by osmosis because his conducting was never clear, believe it or not. Mm. It was very, very vague. And anybody else who tried to pull that off, any other conductor who wasn't absolutely clear in his motions, you know, just I'm just talking about baton motions, you'd say, oh, my God, I can't follow him. What I, 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 what am I going to do? But with Bernstein, you knew what he wanted. And I cannot explain that except to say that it was some kind of genius level of communication. I even sang with him uh, one time in London proms. I did a piece of his with him conducting. And um, I was the contralto soloist. Uh, Mezzo-soprano also sings contralto parts. And he, the three women soloists, he had singing together, and we all had to cut off together. And normally, a conductor will make a very clear cutoff for the three soloists so that you all end precisely with the orchestra. He was always a kind of just trailed off. And I was thinking, how are we going to know how to cut off together? I, I, we did it. It was just magic. You always got what he wanted. He, he had the gift. Well, after you went to NEC, you, you went straight to New York City. Yes. And... You had no trouble adjusting there, even though you didn't like Boston as much. You really liked New York. And I understand that from there, a big stepping stone for you was when you performed in Dallas, Texas, in an opera with Beverly Sills. You don't normally think of Texas as being a big opera place, but apparently there's a lot going on down there. That was a big stepping stone for you, though, singing with her, correct? Yeah, I had just sung with the Opera Theater of St. Louis, and um, somebody there heard me and said, that, look, they're looking for somebody and to be Beverly Sills's sidekick in Traviata. Mm -hmm. She was the tra Traviata, which is a title role, and I was the sidekick, which is a far, far smaller role. But still, it was very exciting to be with such high-powered people. And yeah, that was a good thing. Then I sang in Houston and... Uh, where else? Austin. I did Aida there. There's a lot of opera going on in Texas. I even sang in Amarillo, actually. You just don't connect those two. No, no. But um, you'd be surprised. Yes, yeah. I am surprised. So you've sung all over the world, not just in Texas, obviously. Yes. And you sing mostly the, the more hardcore, serious roles. What are some of those roles? Well, the role I perform the most is Amneris in Aida, the princess. And that's a, a huge thing and a, and a wonderful part, even though she's very nasty. And I did Azucena a lot in Trovatore and Carmen all over the place, the title role in Carmen. I'm trying to think, one of my favorite roles was uh, Rienzi in Wagner, the role of Adriano, but it's not so well known. It's very early Wagner. But it's a wonderful role I got to do in Europe a lot. You know, I was wondering, with all the traveling you did, how did you meet your husband? 
Well, um, I sang with the New York Philharmonic. I was doing a Bartok opera, Bluebeard's Castle, in Hungarian. And Zubin Mehta, he didn't conduct that performance, but he heard me and asked me to do an audition for him for one of Bernstein's symphonies. The, it's a first symphony. It has a uh, long mezzo-soprano solo. Uh, so I learned it and I sang it for him. And he said, well, um, it's good. You're hired, but you have to work on your Hebrew. And I thought, oh, my God, this man from India is telling me to work on my Hebrew. I went to Hebrew school in Omaha, Nebraska. How could he know? Well, he did know. He knew a lot, a lot more than I did. So I found a Hebrew coach through a friend who wasn't really a Hebrew coach. He's a Hebrew scholar. And over the phone, he explained each word and and the pronunciation and we go through the whole sentences we we coach quite a bit and i offered to pay him because you pay your coaches when you know especially total strangers and he said no just get me tickets for when you sing with the philharmonic i said okay so he came to the performance and we started dating and now we've been married for 35 years well he came to the performance but from what i hear he was <laughs> transfixed well, that's what he likes to say, but I, I don't want to say it. You can say it. He always says it on a certain note. It was a high G that soars out over the orchestra um, on a very dramatic phrase. And um, he decided that was just it for him. So, uh, it, yeah, that's, that's what happened pretty much. And here you are. Yes, and we're in Bethel now. Yes, and thank goodness. You have been listening to Catskill Character on WJFF. I'm Donna Fellenberg, and my guest today is opera singer Janice Meyerson. We'll be right back after these messages. Wow, the man can blow. This extraordinary musician recorded some 200 records in his 60-year career. Hello, I'm Georges Collinet. Join me as we celebrate the life of the amazing Manny Dibongo next time on Afropop Worldwide from PRX. Saturday night at 9. Welcome back to Catskill Character. If you've just joined us, my guest today is opera singer Janice Meyerson. After traveling the world over, how did you end up here in the Catskills? My husband and I had decided that it would be nice to have a weekend retreat um, away from the city, like a lot of people. I guess we're pretty typical that way. And we spread the net and found the most wonderful place in Bethel, New York. It was a paradise from the first minute we came here, except we knew nothing about repairs in a house or wildlife or anything. We have a converted barn. We had a lot of adjustments to make, shall we say, but we love it. And we came out here 11 years ago. Um, we spend all summer here every summer. During COVID, we were very happy to be out here full time. And we've been here since March 2020, pr pretty much. Did you know that you were moving right into the area where the Woodstock Festival was? Well, yeah, we saw that. It didn't make a huge impression. It does now, but I thought, okay, well, that's really nice. But when I see what a wonderful institution Bethel Woods is, I'm so thrilled to be here. And we hear the concerts a lot of times in our backyard. 
I've heard Ringo Starr, we heard Santana, and then sometimes you think, oh, we're going to hear this tonight. We don't. So we go, we, we go to buy a ticket. We'll just do that. Can you tell us what it's like living in a converted barn? You know, it sounds so romantic. Oh, it is. We love it, except there's no basement. There's nothing but uh, animals under there. And the first year we had skunks who gave birth under our ground floor bathroom. And I thought they were pretty cute until mm, they started reproducing and we had generations of them. And I think the neighbors were a little annoyed with us for good reason. The next year, we had possums born under there. So there's some kind of space under the bathtub where I, apparently it's, it's a maternity ward under there for animals. We've had <laughs> several generations of raccoons born there. We have a woodchuck back, also known as a groundhog, but we just call him the hog. He's back. We, um, shall we say, deported him to the east for resettlement last year, but he's back and he's bigger than ever. He's got a whole apartment under our house. It's like, you know, he's he's entertaining raccoons. They're watching Netflix together. He's got possums in there. I mean, you know, he's he's just running the show down there. And we hear him in the bathroom. How did you get started with the ducks? We have some people who have become friends nearby who have a lot of sheep and they needed grazing land. So they let their sheep graze on our land every summer. And one year they said to us, can you uh, handle some ducks in your pond? And we said, sure. We didn't know anything about ducks. So they brought over, uh, we've had, well, a year ago we had nine ducks. We're kind of down now because some of them have gotten eaten by predators. But we've gotten very involved in the ducks, I have to say. Uh, you're not supposed to name the animals because you get too attached to them. But they're all white ducks and they're domestic ducks. Um, two of them have black, big black patches, caps on their heads. So that's Yamaka 1, Yamaka 2, and then one of them limps. And so that's lame duck. So those are the three ducks we have now. And, you know, God willing, they'll still be with us at the end of the summer. Well, I guess it's not unusual because people up here get very attached to their chickens and name them. Of course, these are chickens. They're laying eggs. They're not being killed for meat. So why not get attached to a duck? It makes sense. Right. And ours lay eggs. Obviously, the yarmulkes don't. But some of the ducks we had last year were laying eggs and we would collect them every day. It makes me get up early because if you don't get out there early enough, the skunks get them or the foxes. And we keep duck eggs in the refrigerator and we eat them for breakfast. Lame duck still lays an egg every once in a while, but I think she's slowed down. Well, you were you mentioned this, that you were basically a weekender before COVID hit, but then uh, I was wondering what it's been like for you since March of 2020. You've been basically up here. Have you planted gardens? What have you been doing? Well, yes, we have planted gardens, but we do that every summer with vegetables, which we grow a lot of ugly vegetables. It doesn't always work for us. But um, what was wonderful about being here continuously is that um, we got to see the seasons unfurl. Because you know how certain flowers, they the perennials, they last like one week and then they're gone. And yeah. if you if you missed the iris season of the one week or the forsythias coming out or the tulips or the hyacinths, mm -hmm. you, you don't see it. Well, last year we got to see 
everything. Mm -hmm. And then you see how that turns into summer and what comes out when. And then we got to witness the first autumn leaves coming and, of course, the first snows. But we were out here for everything. And the change of seasons here in the Catskills is spectacular. Yes, it's glorious, I have to say. You know, I was thinking while while you were saying that, that being an opera singer, and you've mentioned this before, is not for the faint of heart. But in a way, your whole career has prepared you for living up here and dealing with the unexpected. Yeah, the unexpected. I mean, you you can't freak out when you um, see a groundhog um, entering your house in your bathtub, um, for example. But um, I'm going to confess, I do. I start screaming. I have to to confess (laughs) that. But, you know, I think just owning a house, um, things happen. The roof caves in. You have to deal with it. We all were used to power outages and things like that. And you just have to, you know, roll with the punches. I mean, it's like when you're on stage, nothing can throw you. I remember somebody had a heart attack while I was singing once and the conductor didn't see it because, of course, his back is to the audience and I could see them taking somebody out on a stretcher and I saw everything going on. I just kept singing. I mean, you know, I figured, what am I supposed to do? So we're kind of like that out here. Whatever happens, we just roll with it. Exactly. I'm curious, what happens to an operatic voice as it ages? I know that you can start singing at a later time in life, like unlike like a pianist, they have to start early. You can start singing later. But what happens to the operatic voice as it starts to age? Um, well, I'm finding that out now. <laughs> but, um, but as a singer, I would say, you know, your, your instrument is in your body and it doesn't mature until really completely till your 20s. So if you start voice lessons in your 20s, you can still have a career, sure. Uh, I I don't have the range that I did um, 10 years ago. I used to sing high C's very easily. And now I don't know if it's because I haven't been singing high C's as much, or if it's just age or a combination. As a mezzo-soprano, I'm lucky because we can keep singing until we drop pretty much because the roles that are in our repertoire, they always say it's witches, bitches, and boys, you know, the the boys meaning the pants rolls. A lot of the roles for a mezzo you can do when you're older. The older women in opera, like, uh, oh, Dialogues of the Carmelites, I did the old, the Mother Superior, she's dying. You don't have a young soprano do that, you know, so we still have a lot of repertoire we can do. And as your voice gets older and you naturally don't sound the same way you do when you're 25, you do older roles. You do the mother a lot. But you have started doing something else outside of opera. Oh, it is sort of a second career. I edit. I I edit. And um, you may say, how could you possibly do that if you didn't major in English. Well, I just learned. It's some, it's, a, it's a, a talent I had that um, I do copy editing, actually. I'm just one of those people who's nitpicky about faulty apostrophes. And mm-hmm. uh, the people I work for are also picky about faulty apostrophes and spelling and punctuation. So I correct it. Oh, and it's, it satisfies some kind of awful desire, I guess, to correct people's grammar and get paid for it. <laughs> and you must know quite a few languages because you you sing in all these different languages. Well, that's an interesting question. Um, you know, you have to sing in a lot of languages to be an opera singer. Uh, basically, French, German, 
and Italian. Mm. But then there's, I've done several operas in Czech by Janacek, um, and I've done a lot in Russian and the one opera in Hungarian. I do not speak those other languages, but I had to learn them well enough. Uh, no, I, I learned the the diction, the pronunciation, and you have somebody translate every single word for you. So that, of course, you know what you're saying. But um, German, I, I lived in Germany a long time and sang there. So, yeah, that I know. But, you know, it's funny. I did an opera in Swedish, believe it or not. And it was on Jean Genet's um, Les Bonnes, The Maids, which I think they've made movies out of. In fact, I know they have. And uh, But it, this opera was in Swedish. And I was Madame, the employer. And I thought, I got to get a Swedish coach. So, you know, the way I got a Hebrew coach who turned out to be my husband, I called around and I called the Swedish consulate in New York and they said, well, they could find me a translator, but it would be like $600 an hour. And I thought, oh, I'm not doing that. So I called um, the Swedish something center, the, the, and I, I can't remember the name of it. And I started going off about how I need a Swedish coach. I'm a an opera singer. I have to translate every word. And they said, um, they let me go on. And they said, um, this is a massage parlor. And I said, oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you, you it said Swedish Institute. You're not. So I finally found somebody at the Swedenborgian church. And they translated every word for me and told me how to pronounce it. And I was told that my Swedish, um, although it did not sound native, um, it was good enough to do the opera and it was great fun. So I got to learn how to say, give me those rubber gloves, damn you, um, <laughs> because that was one of my lines in the opera. So I can say that in Swedish. Now there's a story. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Janice, do you think that now that you've been up here for quite some time that you'll be spending more time up here? I hope so. I mean, we are here and we love it here. I don't know. Time will tell. We take it one day at a time lately. And right now we're here and it's great. It's a wonderful community. I've been involved with the DVAA, the Delaware Valley Arts Alliance. It's a great group of people. They're doing wonderful things. And I am on the board now of the Weekend of Chamber Music. Oh. And I hope people will come to see their concerts uh, later on this month. They've got a full season. Well, not exactly full. It's a little bit truncated, less than usual because of right. you know, the pandemic. But they are up and running and it's going to be great. Well, Janice, I think that, you know, that if you are going to be up here more, it'll make a lot of opera fans very happy and it'll also make your ducks very happy <laughs> I just want to thank you so much for joining me today I've really enjoyed speaking with you I've enjoyed speaking with you thank you for letting me talk about myself for you know the ultimate narcissistic thing for <laughs> all this time thank you you're welcome this has been Catskill Character with my guest, Bethel, New York resident Janice Meyerson. Janice's website is janicemeyerson.com. Thank you so much for listening. Support for Radio Catskill comes from the Calicoon Theater 
an updated vintage movie theater with new releases, film festivals, nostalgic screenings, live music events, and more. Information and schedule at thecalicoontheater.com. Support for WJFF comes from Two Queens, offering coffee, tea, and bees. Located in Pete's Plaza, Narrowsburg, New York. TwoQueensCoffee.com. And from listener donations at WJFFRadio.org. The latest top 40 British folk music album chart is just out, so next time on The Waggalode of Monkeys with me, Graham Rice, here on WJFF Radio Catskill, we'll be hearing the newcomers and the high flyers. So join me, please, for The Waggalode of Monkeys chart show next Sunday afternoon at 3. WJFF Jeffersonville. Support comes from the Homestead School, Montessori Education, preschool through early college with campuses in Glens Bay and Hurleyville, building the intelligence, creativity, connection, and skills for an ecological future since 1978. Homesteadschool.com. From the River Reporter newspaper in Narrowsburg, New York. Riverreporter.com. And from listener donations at wjffradio.org. Support for Radio Catskill comes from the Neversink General Store, featuring an award-winning chef, smoked barbecue year-round, local products and catering, now offering takeout, neversinkgeneralstore.com. And from listeners like you. Black people armed with their faith and ambition built the most prosperous place. And what did this racist white community It's a significant moment in the history of Tulsa and a significant moment in the history of the United States. The United States has been the landscape for dozens of massacres that many people don't know about. Out of this past of enslavement, Jim Crow, our people have not been defeated. Coming up on the Janice Adams Show, filmmaker Don Porter brings the 1921 Tulsa Massacre into sharper focus and context. First, the news.